Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to Who's Talking, the podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. I'm Michael. And I'm Maggie. And this week we're going to be talking about the first of Doctor Who's 60th anniversary specials, The Star Beast. The Doctor is caught in a fight to the death as a spaceship crash lands in London. But as the battle wreaks havoc, destiny is converging on the Doctor's old friend, Donna. I, uh, I appreciate exactly how vague that synopsis is. I appreciate the fact that we're back. Yeah, woo! <laughs> uh, and we're back with a very, um, boy, this could have been right out of 2008. Oh my goodness. This was an episode after my own heart, honestly. Yeah, that wasn't a complaint. No, it, it's the Doctor Who that I came into as a viewer, because uh, I came in right before season six started. Yeah, that this was the Doctor Who I was used to. And then it's got like this nice little 2023 lens going on. That's just it's it's a very nice touch. And it's just like, oh, it grew up with me. And it's just I, I forgot because like, I, you know, I am I am a diehard 11 and 12 person. Oh, yes. I forgot how fun this era was. And I mean, and I rediscovered it rewatching it preparing for this, but also you I felt it watching this episode. Just it's so this show is so fun sometimes. I think that's probably the largest the most stark difference I think between Chibnall and Russell T Davies is that Russell T Davies makes the show have fun. And I don't mean that in like a dragging Chibnall way. I mean I kind of do. <laughs> but like I'm not knocking it. It's it's a take. But also, it's really nice to just have fun. And to be fair to Chibnall, like, the last, most of the Capaldi years were also kind of dark and dour. Oh, yeah, no, no, Moffat, Moffat also had a very, um, I mean, not just the Capaldi years. I mean, Moffat just had a habit of writing, like, really tragic endings for everybody. Woo, tragedy. Meanwhile, Chibnall tried to make, like, the most peaceful, lovely endings as possible. And then everything else was tragic. <laughs> but this, uh, well, I, I guess we can't get there yet because that's a spoiler. But this episode flirts with tragedy for a few seconds. It does. And, until it doesn't. It goes, it goes back and forth and you get a lot of anticipation of the tragedy. I feel like it's less tragic and it's more just preparing you for tragedy. Yeah. The episode does the thing where it it makes you think you know where it's going multiple different times, and even though you you like you're expecting a rug pull, it somehow rug pulls you in ways you didn't expect, except for the ones where you did expect them. Which is that sure is a sentence I just said out loud. We'll get there. We'll we'll talk about <laughs> that. We'll we'll unpack that whole suitcase of a sentence. <laughs> but I guess first, like. Was it just me, or this this was a very, like, E.T. kind of episode? It's E.T., but Doctor Who. Yeah, it felt... It felt... Goonies! I was gonna say Goonies. I've never seen Goonies. I've also never seen E.T. What? I've seen, like, half of E.T. And you know what? That was enough. Did you not like E.T.? And you're just complimenting this now? That's You're like, E.T. is such a good thing. And then you're like, also, I didn't like E.T. You know what? I am I am a person of many multitudes, and we can both like E.T. and not like E.T. 
Mm-hmm. Ogres are like onions. They have layers. Exactly. That exa- it's the same reason I both hate and love Stranger Things. Which Stranger Things also hinges very much on the E.T. aspect. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole, the, 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 the Spielberg and the kids having adventures. Except in Doctor Who's case, it's folks who are middle-aged, which is really <laughs> nice to see. And that's something that I've noticed that's sort of a trend in shows, especially in this like era of revivals that we're in. Mm-hmm. And so you'll get shows that don't shy away from the age of the characters. And they let these characters have bodies that fit their age. You saw that in Star Trek Picard. You will you had a character who had like bad knees, a character whose hands were doing a thing with the arthritis. You know, you had that in The Last of Us. You had the two adults trying to climb the stairs while this like 14-year-old is just going up. And they're just like... <gasps> And you had that here with with Donna at one point where she is running and she's like, okay, that's enough running. And it's just like, I love the like wonderful, youthful innocence that the child Spielbergy adventures brings. But I also really like that it's grounded in this reality that like people exist linearly. They are not in a specific time they're not going to be in their 30 year old bodies the entire their entire lives right i think that groundedness is also something that rtd has always done really well is that the characters always feel like they're progressing through time like you know that moffat would always try and wrap characters in mystery boxes and like their yes. whole thing would be that there's something you have to solve about them and how they progressed through time was unpacking that box. Right. I feel like RTD has always excelled with the, these are people living real lives who just happen to have really strange things happen to them. Which I think is really the heart of the show. I mean, the companion is the heart of the show more than the doctor, I think, because they are just, especially when they're just people. I mean, Rose Tyler just was a girl who lived who lived in London and worked in a shop. I mean, Donna's just Donna's a just temp. a temp in Chiswick. And that remains the case here. She's still just Donna, but in the most extraordinary way. And let's let's talk about Donna. Where is where is Donna when can we talk about that or are we waiting on that? Uh, who cares? We're going into spoilers now. Okay. So yeah, if you haven't seen the episode uh, you might want to go back and watch it before you listen to the rest of our ramblings here. Yeah, you yeah, know, just just hit that pause button and then come back when you're done. We'll be we'll be here. We're not going anywhere. We yeah. got all day. The magic of Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. Wherever good podcasts are sold, or streamed freely. <laughs> they better not be sold. I'm, <laughs> I, I need my cut if that's the case. <laughs> Where's the royalty check? But yeah, so I guess when we when the episode opens, Donna, it's been what fifteen years since. Yes, they they state that it's been fifteen years. So it's been fifteen years since the last time she saw the doctor, and she does not remember him, but remembers that she's forgotten something. Oh yeah, she lost like what would that have been? Two years of her life? Something like that, or at least off and on an amount of time, because she would have lost the first adventure and then theoretically would have lost the time she spent looking for him before they found each other again and then she would have lost everything 
after that. And you sort of, you don't just see how that affects Donna. You really see how that affects the entire family. Especially her mom. Her mom is terrified all of the time. And Wilf, beloved Wilf, who spent his entire life going on about aliens. Has apparently not spoken about them in 15 years. And Donna is just left with this impression that she had something good in the in the this mental breakdown that she apparently had had some really good aspect of it that she was never going to get back and it almost came across as she's ended up kind of like really depressed about it she's it feels like she's depressed but in denial about being depressed yes and i want to give Catherine tate like so much props because she plays that brilliantly oh my god it's absolutely beautiful and the way she's balancing that with the fact that like she has so much love for her family for her mm-hmm. mom her for her husband for her beautiful wonderful daughter um and she balances that with really broad comedy and then really deep like, sadness right and it's it's a master class of a performance because it's the kind of performance i think only a comedian can do because as a comedian you have to be able to tap into those emotions like that and she balances them like it's second hand and it is for her because she's Catherine Tate, but it's just, right. wow. She's even better than she was the last time around. Like, she is outstanding. And she was really good the last time around. I mean, she's my favorite companion of all time. But she's just even better. I mean, like, I'm, I'm dying on that hill. She's even better this oh, time. Oh, she is. I am not fighting you on that hill. <laughs> we'll go down together, man. The thing that really struck me about Donna this time is how open she is with her love for everybody. Because I feel like Donna at times was caked in that, like, mid-2000s, we have to be a tiny bit cynical sometimes. Yes. But this Donna is, like, from the get-go, unafraid to tell anybody and everybody that she loves her husband and she loves her daughter. And I think a lot of that, it's heavily implied that that love that she has for her family and for the world and her ability to express that, a lot of that comes from what she learned from her time with the doctor. You know, she lost that time. But she didn't lose the lessons she learned. Which probably goes into a lot of why she feels like she had something amazing that she lost. And just, oh, that scene, that scene where Rose's bullies are awful and dead name her and the, the way that Donna immediately is ready to beat the living hell out of these teenagers just made me very delighted is that josie's boy i'm gonna go tell her (laughs) she was ready to ruin those kids lives as they deserved i mean that's that is the way to ruin kids lives you tell their mothers Mm -hmm. so going off of that i just want to say that i think that the way that they handled rose's identity felt very they didn't shy away from the fact that she's trans, but they didn't make it a thing. Like, nobody sat there and said, Rose is trans. And that I thought was really nice. There's this really lovely moment between Donna and her mother where Sylvia uh, uses the wrong pronouns. And Donna's immediately like, it's okay. You know, we're trying, it's a journey. You know, that is something that I have found is incredibly true to life, particularly for the people I know who are around sylvia noble's age it isn't a lack of effort it's they they're putting in the effort and it's just it's you know you think people are going to be like old and stuck in their ways they're not they're just working on breaking a habit 
Yeah. And there shouldn't be that that should be shouldn't be a situation that isn't approached with compassion. So it's really lovely what they do in that particular scene because it feels it feels very realistic. It feels like people who are a Gen X and a baby boomer in a society where language is defined by millennials and Gen Z. And I think the thing that that Russell does really well with that scene is that, like you said, it's you can tell that both Sylvia and Donna have their hearts in exactly the right place. Yes. And that everything they're doing, even as they're messing up, it's all out of like love and that they immediately catch themselves and like try to remember, like, you know, try to correct themselves when it happens and they don't make a huge deal of it, which is something that sometimes happens where, you know, if you, you accidentally misgender someone and then they almost have to reassure you as you're freaking out, which mm-hmm. is just as kind of terrible. And I think that's a really, it's a really nice moment because you also get to see the way that Donna and her mom's relationship has changed now that Donna has a kid and that Donna's kind of in the shoes that her mom was in the last go round. And I, I, there's, this gets us into something that I wanted to talk about, which is that I think there's a really big theme in this episode of mothers taking care of their children. Cause you've got Sylvia spending the whole episode taking care of both Donna and Rose. And then you've got Donna literally willing to die to save her daughter without a second thought without a second thought like we're in spoilers so we can say this stuff happens blah 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 you get to the climax the doctor and donna are in the meep ship and the only way they can stop the ship from destroying the earth is for the doctor to give donna her memories back and that will kill her and donna says okay she and says donna without says, hesitation do it she says that's my daughter down there and that's the thing that finally makes the doctor do it, is that Donna's unwavering willingness to do the right thing for her child. Like, just the, the, the sheer selflessness of Donna Noble is what always was, like, the doctor's weakness with her. Because that's what gets him to, you know, help, what was it? It's what gets, her to, gets him to help with Pompeii, is the sheer selflessness of Donna Noble. Just save one. Who believes that she is super selfish, and yet is constantly selfless i mean she goes off a little bit going um you know i gave away my money to be more like you it's no you didn't donna no you you did that because that's who you are and that's who you've been that's who she's been from the get-go yeah she just hides it under this mask to hide her vulnerability and we do get bits of that mask which is fun her whole bit about how the doctor, uh, he can get away with dressing like that up until the age of 35 <laughs> and no further. Uh, what a great line, too. That was such a classic Donna line. And that's like four minutes into the episode. That's <laughs> We're right into it. We really are. The immediacy of jumping into this episode. I mean, as much as I do think that this episode was a lot more setup than I would like. It does jump into it right away. Like you don't have a setup for the setup. Yeah, it's just the spaceship crashes on minute three or something. And that's counting the terrible cold the terrible cold open. Oh gosh, that cold and open. And the intro sequence. Like the spaceship crashes like a minute into the proper episode. And all the setup is just 
laying the groundwork for what's happened after the spaceship crash. You don't spend 20 minutes getting reintroduced to everybody before the inciting incident happens. Yeah, you get reintroduced to them as it's happening, which... Which is smart. That's how you should do it. It is. Speaking of that cold open, mm, that sure was a choice. Should we, I should wonder... we speak of the cold open? <laughs> Everybody's going to, because I, I wonder... Because, you know, they're, they haven't introduced this to a new audience. Can you imagine being somebody on Disney Plus and just flipping it on and the first thing you see is terribly CGI David Tennant in front of the void of space monologuing about something that happened 15 years ago? It's, it's very, like, first or second season Criminal Minds of them. I mean, I love Criminal Minds and I love it on Criminal Minds. It does not work for Doctor Who. It does not no. work for Doctor Who. They could have gotten away with just a traditional previously on Doctor Who and then just shown the footage they showed without the voiceover or the, the monologuing. And that would have been fine. It feels like on. a lot of that was designed specifically so that they could have sound bites for the trailer. I, I feel like it. But also, they didn't use any of those sound bites. All the sound bites are from the other dialogue where they say the same things 20 minutes later in the episode. Because you've got the line where uh, the doctor's talking to Shirley and is saying, like, Destiny's coming from Donna Noble and blah, 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 if blah, she blah. remembers me, she will die. That's that's lifted from that conversation. And then all of Donna's lines where she's, you know, hinting at having forgotten everything are lifted from that conversation with her mom. So those scenes aren't even used in the trailers. And they're redundant because the episode itself says the same things 20 minutes later. And it's just confusing. Why did why did you do it this way? Some executive decided that they needed to do it. Whether it's whether it was on the Bad Wolf team, on the BBC team, or on the Disney team, someone decided they needed that and talked everybody else into it. I think it makes sense if it was going to if the original plan had been like we're gonna do one of those five to ten minute recap minisodes before the episode. You know how Netflix will have that, that sometimes? That would have been fine, yeah. I feel like it looks like it's designed to function as that, and then instead they made it function as the cold open, which completely doesn't work. But uh, that is the only explanation that I could possibly come up with for why they did it that way. What's funny is, having said that, it reminds me a lot. I don't know if you ever saw, they did for season seven they kept doing these little prequel minisodes they'd put up on the youtube and they did one for the name of the doctor called he said she said and it's like three minutes long and it's two monologues of the doctor and clara talking about the other one and basically setting up the premise that you're gonna find out who clara is at trends of lore in the next episode it's basically that, except they decided to put it in the episode. Interesting. I have, like, vague, vague memories of that. It's actually kind of decent, because they do some cool visual stuff, but that's neither here nor there. It's like, they made a mini-sode and decided the mini-sode was the cold open, when they should have just started with the title sequence. Speaking of the title sequence, can we talk about the title sequence? Because it's yeah. so pretty. I, I don't love the way the logo comes in, but I'm here for everything else. I think it's great. I think the new theme is phenomenal. Oh, it sounds so much better in the studio version. Okay, so Michael and I both had um, a bit of a concern when the live recording came out over the summer. 
Uh, because we lost a lot of the do-we-woo bits. Yeah, you know, the ooh-wee-oo. And you and I were both, we both figured it was a, it was just a mixing thing. It was just how it was mixed live. Yeah. And it was going to change. I am so glad we were right. Yeah, boy, boy, did we nail that one. We we got that one spot on. It was, this. I heard it and I went, oh, that's, that's how it is. I'm here for this one. I heard it and it just settled nicely in my heart. I really hope it's that they keep that theme for for Shooty's season. Like, I'm sure they'll keep the sequence and just change the names, but I hope they don't change the theme, too. Like, I hope it's not just a special 60th theme. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of work went into that. Right? Can you imagine if you, you just designed a whole sequence and a whole new song that you're going to use three times and then never again? And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. The way that the TARDIS... First of all, I'm so glad it looks nothing like the last round like like the previous rtd era because that was the concern was like the vortex was just going to look like that again it doesn't look anything like the first david tenant run it doesn't look anything like any of them it probably looks like i guess i would say the font from like rtds yeah i mean there's like and bits then, that are clearly like, inspired more by that. inspired by like 11's time vortex yeah but with the colors are very coloring. cool. Yeah. I just appreciated that they really did a lot of stuff with the TARDIS in it. They did. The they TARDIS did. is going wild in this sequence. It's delightful. Speaking of the TARDIS, we're gonna we're gonna veer off track for a second. But it, we're not off track because it's it's related. The 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 children in need mini sewed. Where the TARDIS just like slammed through <laughs> the Dalek. <laughs> Why did it do that? Why didn't it just materialize like normal? Why did it just whoosh? I don't know, especially since he like he regenerated outside the TARDIS, so the TARDIS wasn't destroyed. Well, like what's so there was the Doctor Who magazine comic that happens in between the power of the Doctor and that minisode, and it technically leads directly into the minisode, but not in a way that should have made the TARDIS freak out like that. Um it's a lot to unpack here, so we're not going to, but a thing happens, and, like, something kind of melts on 13's console, and the doctor's like, oh, it'll be fine, and he's like, I'm heading off, hope I don't go back to Scarrow. Because, like, the, the comic was all about Daleks, and so he was like, mm, I don't want to go to Scarrow anytime soon. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That can't possibly be foreshadowing. But what's, uh, what's interesting is, um... Definitely between that mini episode and the Star Beast, something's happened because he does not have the sonic screwdriver in the comic or in this mini episode, and yet he starts this new episode with the new Sonic out of nowhere. Because he had 13s, and 13s gets destroyed in the comic. And then the TARDIS like briefly remakes another 13 Sonic for some reason that also then gets destroyed. And then we don't see the Sonic again until we see this magic wand Sonic that can somehow generate force fields and projections. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on, oh, this is now a computer monitor that has appeared out of thin air via the Sonic screwdriver? My big thought is, whatever, I don't care. The Sonic screwdriver has been a magic wand for nearly two decades now. Let's just embrace it at this point. But it's always had limitations. Well, it still kind of does, I think. We'll see. I mean, it's never, tr it's never like, generated stuff. It's always been, like, 
reading something or scanning something or adjusting something that is already present. It does not materialize things. And it's not just the fact that stuff appears on the screen and the doctor's able to like manipulate it, which means there is some computer processor in the ether. It it just it's it's a little mind boggling and it took me out of it just a little bit. To actually answer your question, I am significantly more okay with the monitor than I am with the force field. Interesting. The monitor is, like, fine because they've long been hinting at the idea that the Doctor can read readings off of the screenless sonic screwdriver. I know, but they shouldn't have put a screen in there. I, I They should just put a screen on it, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like I, part of me wonders if that is not actually happening so much as it's a visual representation the way that, like, Sherlock would show the text's floating around the phone so that we could read it like is that what the doctor normally sees when he looks at the screwdriver and they're just showing it for us i don't know i could explain that away that way but i doubt it considering it can also generate force fields now so it's clearly just generating things and let's talk about the force fields how do we feel about the force fields michael um like i said i don't really care whatever but it was very silly when I realized what he was doing. I was like, is he is he drawing right now? Oh, oh, it can do that now? Okay. Sure. Honestly, I was cooler with the force fields than I was with the computer situation. I think the computer makes more sense because we know it has an operating system. Well, So it's not as yes. much of a stretch for it to have a little projector in it that can just project... But it did. It wasn't a projector that projected. He drew it. It like came to life. Like it was. I mean, it did was. It? it is. Yeah, he drew a little rectangle, and a monitor screen? appeared. Huh. It's like. Did you ever see the show Chalk Zone? No. Yes. Wait a second. I did see Chalk Zone. It is just like that. You're right. <laughs> and I feel like the the force field made more sense to me, just in the sense of like. Freezing, like a sonic... freezing mon- molecules or something. Uh, like, I think it, it makes, you're right, it makes sense in the same idea that the idea that the sonic screwdriver could unlock a door makes sense and that you could manipulate the sound, like sound waves and molecules to such a degree that it, they could harden or actually affect physical objects. Exactly. And it's something that um, in the years since RTD has left Doctor Who... We've become accustomed to that just through, like, the onslaught of superhero movies. The manipulation of matter is not something that is... Unusual. Yeah. So the the average sci-fi watching audience um, would... would get that. This will just look normal to them, yeah. It won't... they won't think anything of it, like, ah, he has a thing that does a thing, cool. I didn't feel that way about the random instantiation of a computer. You know what, I'm still okay with it. Whatever. (laughs) It's cool. I mean, might as well. That's what I'm saying. Like, who cares at this point? That thing's a magic wand. Let it be a magic wand. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I didn't love it, but I, it's not... So it took me out of it a bit, but it's not gonna ruin the episode for me. Yeah. I, it it took me out of it in the sense that I went, oh, it can do that now. And then I moved on pretty quickly because he was like, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, actually. I'm vibing. And it led into a very nice introduction of... Of Shirley. Of Shirley. And the 50-something unit scientific officer. I love Shirley. She's an icon. She's going to be... She's sticking around, I think. 
She better. What an icon. She she is she has the doctor's job and is definitely better at it than him. Yes. One hundred percent. Even when he was regularly doing it. He's she's still way better than the third doctor ever was. She's not impressed by him, which is lovely. Because nope. there's so much of um just in New Who unit being like really impressed with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Shirley is not impressed at all. She she couldn't care less. She's just like, get out of my way. You're kind of in the way. I'll I'll listen to what you have to say. Otherwise, over there. And it's 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 great. And she ends up saving his butt because she has darts in her wheelchair. And also bazooka, like cannons. <laughs> I love her. Phenomenal. What an icon. What incredible. And she's also choices. very good. The actress, uh, what's her name? Hold on. Uh, Ruth Madley is. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Is very good. Oh, her. Her comedic timing is great, which in an episode led by Catherine Tate to have noticeably great comedic timing. Chef's kiss. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of comedic timing, this is a great, this is a great transition. The Meep and the Rarth Warriors are both hilarious. First of all, the Rarth Warriors could not look like goofier if they tried and i love them so much because that is such a classic doctor who like alien design they just look stupid and it i is, love it them. is not something that we have seen in new who it is distinctly going back to the 70s there and it's just but they but they look it's it, they don't look terrible like no no it's, it's a really good design they just also look ridiculous as they should and they're, it's very accurate to the comic that the episode's based on, because this is adapted from a Doctor Who magazine comic from the 80s. And that's exactly how they look in the comic, and it's exactly how the Meep looks in the comic. But boy, are they silly. They are so silly. So for folks who had read the comic in the 80s, what was their understanding of the Meep? What was... what? was brought in did they know in advance that the meep was going to actually be the bad guy i don't know for so so the way that doctor who magazine the comics work is they're usually that's a serialized thing so it's like five pages a month i've only ever read the later collected editions so i don't know exactly where any given like issue would have split the story that being said the general thrust of the plot is the same so in the comic two kids find the meep having crashed in kind of the backyard right and the meep tries to get them to help the meep and is very nice and sweet and is claiming that they're being hunted down by these big scary green ant alien things and the fourth doctor is there and kind of assumes that the Meep is good until the moment that the Rarth warriors get the fourth doctor and tell him what's actually going on. Which is basically what happens here. Except it's a little different, but it's the same general idea. And so in both versions, the Meep is presented as a sweet, innocent, cute, cuddly alien until the second they are not. I don't know if that answers your question or not. That answered my question. My question was, was the meat presented as evil in the 80s? Not at first. Eventually, yes. And it's the same general principle. The meat is controlling people via like a black sun in, his, in, it, in their ship. And 
They're using the steel mill to rebuild the ship so that they can drill into the Earth and refuel the ship so they can go into space and cause mayhem. And then the Doctor does a thing, destroys the ship. That's what I mean. Like, this is a surprisingly faithful adaptation considering half the characters aren't in the comic. They basically, Rose, Rose and Donna replace Fudge and whatever the other character's name was. I don't remember now. Fudge is technically in this episode. That's the little kid that Rose talks to. That little kid. And he has like kid three lines. Is, he, he had three lines, but he was delightful. In the comic, he's the co- like he's the co-human lead. It's Fudge and the other character whose name I continue to not remember. And I'm, I simply am not going to look it up right now. And I kind of assumed that it was going to be Fudge and Rose. Because they, they made a point of saying a couple weeks ago that Fudge was in the episode. And like, yeah, I guess. He sure is there. Not doing much. Which begs the question, is he, does he have a larger role to play? Still that'd to be, be seen. That'd be, that'd be nice. I, speaking of larger roles, the meep, Miriam Margulies, who is also a comedic genius. I did not realize that that was Miriam Margulies until I saw it in the credits. And I was like, what? Like, act- expletives that I cannot say on this podcast yeah. exited my mouth. Oh, but you know what? She'd probably say them if she were on here. Oh, I bet. Uh, she is just, oh, the, I mean, she's really good when the meep is being cute. But the second, the second the meep turns evil, Miriam Margulies kicks down that door and she is ready to the play. The thrill that goes through that voice. <laughs> she could not have been happier to be evil incarnate. I mean, isn't that just the dream, though? I mean, I don't know how you can chew the scenery if you are... If you're not there. Yeah, if you're doing an audio performance. <laughs> but you know what? She sure does. Yeah, mouthfuls. In the best way. In the best way humanly possible. It's so delightful. Oh my, and she is just, oh, there aren't words for how good she is. And the design, the CGI work is really, really good on the Meep too. It is. Well, it's a mixture of CGI work and they also had like a person in a Meep suit. For when the Meep was, like, walking around before it turned evil. Like, that, that scene where they're walking through the house, that was apparently a person in a Meep suit. Just, like, waddling behind them. Amazing. <laughs> Which, uh, I love I love the way the Meep... The Meep is giant, also. Definitely bigger than an adipose. I thought it was going to be adipose, like... Right? And then, no, it stands up... The, the, the Meep stands and you're like, oh, no, they're, like, they're, like, half Adana. Yeah, they're like they're 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 large. That's like that is an Ewok. I think it's, it might be bigger than an Ewok. Probably. But uh, what a what a good design, and I also really appreciate the way because the comic does this too. The way that there is a visual distinction between nice sweet meep and then evil meep. Oh my god! With the ears. The ears, and then like the eyebrows like bend in, and you get the sharp teeth. Just so lovely, like production design on this episode between everything was just i'm i'm such a fan and like for me that's kind of what i mean by the show it's very fun and very silly and very unafraid to be silly because the evil mute design is such a such an over-the-top archetypal like evil alien look but at the same time the show just commits to it so wholeheartedly that you don't 
you don't laugh at it. You're just like, oh, okay, we're doing this. This is a delight. And I mean, that's that's what makes science fiction work. It's not necessarily the elaborate VFX. It's the commitment to the bit because that is what's going to get the audience to believe. Mm -hmm. I know both of us were worried the show would lose that with all the extra money. Yes. No, they just used the extra money to commit to the bit harder. And if it stays this way, I am going to be a very, very happy Whovian. And also, I think they, they use the money smart, too. Like, they use it on the alien that needed it, and then you can tell an astronomical amount of money went into building the TARDIS set. Can we talk about the TARDIS set? We'll, we'll do it now. We'll circle back to other things, because I guess before we hit the TARDIS... There's just a lot of practical sets, both in this and in that mini episode. That mini episode, they built that set. That's not a green screen. They built that in, on a soundstage because in that little – they're doing the Doctor Who Unleashed thing. And in that, they've got behind-the-scenes footage of them standing on that set. And it's the set. They probably augmented bits of it with some CGI. But it's there's no green screen on it. They built that. And we know that they filmed a bunch of Star Beast on location – I mean, it's Rachel Talele, so, like, of course it looks wonderful. And, like, I'm not knocking visual effects artists here. To my brother, if you're listening to this, I promise I'm not knocking visual effects artists here. There's just, like, a tactileness that can't be captured with VFX that can only be captured if you're standing on something. Yes. I mean, the, the, the worst practical effects have more of an impact for me as a viewer than the best cgi like you can put i mean if you look at like old episodes of star trek you'll you'll have a dog just in a suit with a little unicorn horn that's an alien of course and that is going to resonate with me more than a bad 2000 cgi lizard monster right which star trek enterprise had that tracks but yeah you can you can tell how much money they spent on stuff particularly the second they enter the new TARDIS. And it's gigantic. And a lot of that is practical. Oh, it's almost entirely practical. It took them the entire filming of all three specials to build the TARDIS. They were saying in like some of the magazine interviews that they didn't film any of the TARDIS interior scenes until the last week or two that they filmed because it wasn't built yet. And you can just, you can see how proud everybody behind the scenes and in front of the camera obviously is of that set when you just get this shot of david Tennant just running around his brand new tardis and he's touching everything and it's like look at this thing we built look how cool yeah. this is which is delightful and can we talk about david's running i'm sorry not to jump all over the place but he has this physicality that he brings to 10 uh, that, I guess, in 14 now, but that he brings to the Doctor that is just so unique to the Doctor. And you see him move. And it's like, this isn't... This is a 50-something-year-old man. And he slips back into it so perfectly. I mean, he does this, like, running and leap thing when he goes into the Meep spaceship. And it's it's exactly like you're watching an episode from 2006. It's crazy. Like, he's not lost a step physically. But yeah. his performance has evolved some. It's still 
But the physicality he embodies with the doctor that is so unique to his doctor, yeah, is something he changes into. I mean, let's be real. The last thing most people will have seen him in is either going to be Good Omens or Jessica Jones. Well, and what's funny is he literally went from filming Good Omens to to doing this. Like there was oh, like yeah. a month or two difference, and. He does not move like this in Good Omens 2. He doesn't. It's completely... His performance is just so completely specific. Yeah. And I just think that's beautiful. But before before we get to him, let's... I want to talk a little bit more about the TARDIS. Because I think it is such a nice design. No, yes. no. No, it's such no, a we nice need to design. talk about the TARDIS. I got sidetracked. We need to talk about the TARDIS. And the thing I love about it is that it... It's so clearly inspired by multiple different past designs while also being something wholly unique. It is. It looks nothing like the last Tenant TARDIS. Like, I guess the console has some similarities. It looks nothing like any of the new Who TARDISes, Well, really. I mean, it has, like, elements that are clearly inspired. I think the one it looks closest to structurally is 12s because of the multi-levels and all the railings and stuff. It's very similar to that in that respect. But it's very classic in the color scheme, and you've got the roundels on the wall, and it's very, like, bright white sci-fi, except it's got the lights that can change colors whenever you need them to, so you've got, like, an unlimited amount of mood lighting. Which I think the mood lighting is actually really reminiscent of uh, 13's TARDIS. Yeah, you've got you've got 13's mood lighting mixed with 12's layers, mixed with the glass from 11. Mixed with, I think, I think the actual console's got some elements of nine and tens, like visual language on it. But then you've got the color scheme of the classic TARDIS. It's very much like this is the TARDIS, except it's all of the TARDISes kind of combined into one design. It's beautiful. It is stunning. And I'm so glad because you know they did not build that for only three episodes. That's obviously going to be the TARDIS going forward. Yes. Because you don't spend that much money on i mean that and you don't build something that big that takes up apparently multiple sound stages or something to use for two weeks and then never again <laughs> they better keep it because otherwise it's uh, otherwise it's an irresponsible use of that money yes <laughs> if you were only going to keep it for a little bit why'd you why'd you build it that big and why did you make it that nice i would be just i would be heartbroken if the tardis <laughs> if i built that set <laughs> I think the other nice thing is it's it's a very inviting TARDIS because I don't know that I don't know that nine and tens was super inviting because it was so like dark dark and Donnie even mentions that this one's like much brighter and happier. I, I don't think any of the new Who TARDISes have been very bright at all. I mean, Elevens was a bit. Elevens was okay, and Twelves could be depending on his mood. Twelves had the homey vibe because it was like all the books, and so the lights were kind of. I'm walking into my living room. I mean that. Depended on the episode. Yeah. And I think that'll be the case here is it'll depend on the episode exactly how inviting this thing looks. The TARDIS is like, you know what? I'm in a bad mood today. We're going to have red lights. Leave me alone. <laughs> the doctor, he, he he drove me into a wall again. River Get Song out. appears and all of a sudden all of the walls are green with envy. <laughs> Get her out of here. No, bring her back, please, I beg of you. The TARDIS is like, I've seen things. I don't want to see them again. The TARDIS is like, that is my child. Can I not have to watch this? 
But yeah, okay, so speaking of David Tennant, I'm just... None of us should have ever expected that he wasn't going to do 10 again. And I didn't expect that. But I think what delights me is that he is doing 10 again, but it's also very abundantly clear that it's 10, but with 11, 12, and 13's experiences. Oh, yeah, it's completely matured. Like, he's not... Emotionally, he's not 10. I don't know if the time loop in Heaven Sent technically counts as the Doctor aging. I like to say it does. So he's like 5 billion years old at this point. So he's either 5 billion years old or like 2,000 years old. Oh, I think he might be. How long was he on Trenzalore? Was it just 1,000 years? Or was it 2,000? I know pre-Trenzalore, he's like 1,100. It's like 1,142 or something like weirdly specific. Because there's a, there's a there's a two hundred year gap between, uh, young eleven in Impossible Astronaut and when eleven dies in Impossible Astronaut. There's two hundred yes. years, and then the assumption is that there's not a ton of time after that, but before he goes to Trenzalore, and then he's on Trenzalore for at least a thousand years. Yes, yeah, so he's at least like twenty one hundred or so years old. Yeah, and then I don't think I don't think twelve, ignoring the potential four billion years there. I don't think 12 was alive for, like, you know, millennia. No, but probably a couple hundred years. Maybe. Could just be decades. Well, no, it wouldn't be, because he lived at least a couple decades with River Song, and then he was on Earth for, like, 70 years, keeping an eye on Missy in the vault for some reason. 12 really, 12 really was the polar opposite of 11. 11 couldn't stay still, and 12's like, I'm going to be a university teacher for seven decades. Meanwhile, Eleven could barely manage, like, six months living with the Pons. Yep. And then Twelve's like, what if I am the longest-serving professor at this college? What if that's me? What an icon. And then Thirteen's just, like, forced into places. Yeah. Thirteen doesn't want to be anywhere at any time. And Thirteen's forced, like, all of a sudden stuck in jail, or... Oh god, she did spend, like, 20 years in jail, didn't she? She did! R.I.P. R.I.P. 13. But yeah, so this is David Tennant, like, it's the 10th Doctor in mannerisms and physicality, but they did not oversell the fact that it's not the 10th Doctor emotionally. It's a different this character. Is, this is 14. Yeah. Because he's he's a lot more, like, it's not like 10 was ever shy about his feelings, but this guy's a lot more, like, oh, he's his heart's on his sleeve. Because he tells a stranger that he loves Donna. Ten could never. Ten could never, would never. Ten wouldn't even admit to loving Rose. Yeah. Like, Ten would have absolutely called Donna his best friend, but he would have never said, I love her. I would do anything in the world for her. And he even comments on it when he says it. He goes, oh, do I say that now? Which I like. I like. I hope that that is... I hope that that open-heartedness is something that does continue throughout the episodes and isn't just something that they throw in there to serve as a means to get him to explain what was going on i think it will because there's the clip from the in the trailer that i'm assuming is from the third special where he's talking to donna and he's like i don't know that i can save you and i don't think that's something that 10 would have said that's that's like that's a stark openness that i don't think a lot of the previous doctors would have been able to say like, he wouldn't have been able to look at her and say, you might die now. And I, I, there's nothing I can do. I mean, he was still on his journey to becoming the Time Lord Victorious at that point. Man's been humbled. 
the other thing that David Tennant does so well, he really that man is not resting on his laurels here because that is he might be better than he was then. I just the the um, I don't know, maybe not better, but as good because he really like runs the emotional gamut in a way that doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a best of, but like the agony in his voice when he and Donna are on the ship. He is not phoning anything in. This is not this is not a reunion for him. This is It's not a victory lap. It's a he said I'm doing this again. I'm doing this again. Not to make this entire podcast just like us gushing about David Tennant and Catherine Tate, but like the commitment from both of them. And I think that's like really a through line in this entire special is the commitment that everybody brings. I mean, not even just them. I mean, clearly clearly Russell had something he wanted to say again. Like it when they announced it, there's the fear of like, oh, it's just, it's just RTD and it's just David Tennant and it's just Catherine Tate. And there's certainly an element of that where it's like, yeah, we got the band back together. But then, I don't know, maybe it's not such a bad thing to get the band back together when the band's as committed as they are. Yeah, you know, this isn't just putting out a special because we were hanging out during COVID and we missed each other. This was... We did that. It reminded us how much we like doing this, and we had something we wanted to do. And I think that's that's part of what is lost in a lot of American reboots and revivals, is that element of, is there a reason to do this? Yeah. Whereas this feels like it, they wanted to do it, they had something to say. And they had a good story. And they are doing the thing that we assumed they would do, which is that clearly the thing that Russell wanted to do was that he wanted to kind of undo what he did to to Donna. Which I have mixed feelings about. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, and I've said if you're going to bring Donna back, you need to follow through with killing her. Which I say with all of the love in my heart, she is my favorite companion. I love that woman dearly. And I think that There's an element of not hand-waving it by saying, okay, well, we shifted some of the issue onto your daughter, so now because it's, like, split between two people, it's more balanced. And I'm like, okay, I can handle that. But they have this bit at the end where they're just like, a male doctor, a male presenting doctor would never be able to just let it go. And they let all of their energy go. And... Like, you talk about something being, like, hand-waved away. That's literally, they were hand-waving their their problem away. If you're going to spend so much time talking about this and have it be such a thing, to have it resolved in such a hand-wavy manner feels cheap to me. It just feels like he wrote himself into a corner and then pulled something out of a hat and tried to make it into something. Yeah, and I feel like he could have just gotten away with having it be... Like, just have it split between the two of them, and so if it splits between the two of them, it's not dangerous anymore. And just have the the metacrisis element of it just be something that they deal with, just like any other facet of a personality. That would have been fine. I mean, I, I did not have the same reaction you did to it, partially because this is a very RTD thing where he loves to, like... He loves to hand wave stuff away Which in the most annoying Which is funny, because I thought way. it felt very... Um, it's very Moffat, too. To me, this felt a lot like the season three finale, where the way they undo the Doctor being the little goblin thing is that they just pray him back to normal. 
And it's like, this is, so this is like, this is clearly the same writer who did that. And it's like, whatever. I, I, it's stupid and it's, it's like distractingly stupid. But at the same time, I'm glad he didn't drag it out the whole three specials because that would have gotten really old by the middle of special two if they're constantly waffling about, oh, if you remember me too much, you're going to die. See, that's the thing. I think I liked that it was split between Rose and Donna. And then I would have been really cool if they had just kept it at that. But then ultimately it wasn't good enough. And Donna does end up having to... I I just, I think that you've... You just want Donna to die. (laughs) The Donna Noble story is so deeply tragic. uh, In a way that is so uniquely tragic. And to retcon that, I think does a disservice to the emotional impact of that story i can see it although i don't it didn't strike me as hard of a retcon as like and maybe it's because i've had 15 years to sit with this or i guess it's been more like 10 for me but whatever yeah it's it's been about 10 for me too it didn't hit me the way that immediately retconning clara's death did we're like this one feels it's a retcon but it feels for me anyway at least a little bit more emotionally earned of a retcon because you've got, like, this... It's him, like... I wish, I guess, maybe that there was something the Doctor did to fix it, rather than it just fixing itself. Where, like, if they could have retconned it in a way where it was him properly fixing a mistake, that would have been nice. That would have made sense, rather than, we're just gonna let it go. Yeah. I still think I still think they easily could have gotten away with just saying, now that it's split between the two of us, it's not a danger anymore. Exactly. And then moved on. You don't even have to have it come back. If you want to move on, you can just say, it's lessened now, so we're fine. And then never mention it again. And see, that, I would have been all right with them keeping that and not having Donna die. But now I feel like... They still might be setting up something. Oh, I, I'm I'm hoping, because I feel like at this point they've done so much to throw it away that it's, it's, it's overkill. It's like, okay, so you're coming back to this, right? Like, you're gonna, it's gonna be, like, the 11th hour, and, I mean, the 11th hour metaphorically, not the 11th hour of the episode, um, <laughs> and we're gonna find out that because Rose is a child, that she is having a difficult time with the metacrisis, and Donna has to take it back into her, and that's gonna kill her. Like, that is, that is, that's how I would write it, that's how, uh, I, yeah. I've put a lot of thought into this since I've seen the episode, because this did stick with me, because I just, I, I want the follow-through. And I feel like the Rose and Donna sharing the Metacrisis was the follow-through, and then they added more to it. And now there needs to be additional follow-through. Does that make sense? It does. And speaking of the future, why don't we look to the future? You know, what What was dropped in this episode that is a thread to be picked up? Because we know that there's a lot more to come. We know we're going to have Neil Patrick Harris. We know we're going to have the Toymaker. There are, I think, like two very obvious things that they are setting up here. And it's possibly the same thing. You've got the ongoing question of why did, why, why does the Doctor have David Tennant's face again? And they've said it's, like, not a huge story thing, but it's something, but it is a story. And they keep mentioning it, so they have to pay it off at some point. Even if it's just a lame payoff, like, why did 12 have that one Pompeii citizen's face? 
like it's I, that's obviously something they're setting up regardless of how satisfying the payoff is but then right before the Rarth warriors take the meep away the meep says a very interesting line uh, where the meep is like i have to tell the boss because the boss is going to find it very interesting that there's a n- another two-hearted alien and i'm assuming the boss is the toy maker i feel like that's that's the that's the go-to assumption it's such an obvious like we're setting something up wink wink and we know the next time the doctor is on earth in these specials or like on modern day earth it's the giggle because that's the next time that you know, he's he's going to be at unit again and we that's where the toy maker is and so it feels like that's very obvious hey the meep is working for the toy maker wink wink if you're paying attention wink wink it's very uh, it's very bad wolf in its <laughs> subtlety. It's nice though. It's 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 nice. I mean, that's that's good foreshadowing. Good foreshadowing. Yeah, because if if you're a general audience and you don't know that Neil Patrick Harris is playing the toy maker in two episodes, that doesn't mean anything to you. Like you're not gonna be like, oh, you're like, oh, what is he? What is this little? What's this little guy talking about? What's the little fella here talking about? Yeah, it's it's setting something up. And, I mean, I assume it's the toy maker. Who else is it going to be? Well, see, that's it's an interesting thing. So there's something that I... If we want to talk about absolutely ridiculous baseless theories, mm-hmm. Rose Noble makes toys. Is she the toy maker? She is a toy maker. Maggie, this is, this is veering on Rory is the master territory. <laughs> but um, I think that there is still... There's a lot more surprises. I mean, this is celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who. And to be fair, it's doing a really good job. It is. The plot of this episode is from an obscure 1980s comic. And then we have a returning villain who was last seen in the year of our Lord, 1966. And units here, which is very 1970s. And you've got David Tennant and Catherine Tate. And then you've got Murray Gold using music cues from non-David Tennant doctors. Beautiful. You've got the total mystery that is Wild Blue Yonder, which they continue to not say anything about. The synopsis could not be vaguer if they tried. It literally says something along the lines of the TARDIS drops the Doctor and Donna off in, 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 in on the edge of adventure and then runs away. And how do they escape? Which is like, that sounds like an episode of Doctor Who. Something happens, and how do they get out? <laughs> but it's exciting. I think that there's still so much room for there to be so much more to see. Which is nice, because when I found out that this was going to be three specials, I was a little bit nervous that it was going to be dragged out. But I think that it's set up really nicely that it's going to fit in the space they've given. They made a really smart decision in making it like a mini... It's a it's a mini series. Yeah. But it's also a miniseries of three technically standalone episodes. Like, I can't imagine you're going to be able to watch Wild Blue Yonder without having seen The Star Beast. But The Star Beast has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It ends on a cliffhanger, but the story the episode is telling ends, like, seven minutes before that cliffhanger. And it's, so it's an episode of television. But it's also, like, part of a bigger anniversary celebration. And so I think... I think being able to split it up the way they are is giving them both the room to do more and to also be more celebratory. 
because you're not cramming all of it into 75 minutes. So you're not, you don't have to pick your battles quite the way that, like, Day of the Doctor might have had to. You can do more. And we know that we know that Shooty is coming at some point because there's We've that clip that. in the trailer. And they've made a big point of saying that the background in that clip is not the real background. That, all, that, that cloudy void he's standing in front of is something they made for the trailer because if they showed where he was standing, it would be a spoiler. Exactly. I am going completely on a baseless limb here. I think he's going to be in Wild Blue Yonder. Because they keep saying, they keep saying this episode is, quote, unlike anything the show has ever done, that it took a long time for them to get the cast and crew to wrap their heads around what was going on. It was entirely filmed in studio, with the exception of, like, one thing they filmed outside or something that was not spotted by anybody. And at the moment, they have confirmed, like, two and a half cast members. And one of them is, like, half confirmed because I think she's shown up on the BBC website, but they keep kind of being very secretive about who's in the episode. The only two people definitely confirmed are David Tennant and Catherine Tate. And then the only other things we know is that they arrive somewhere. The TARDIS's uh, HAD system, that's its, like, hazard detective system, goes off. And so the TARDIS leaves because it detects danger and it won't return until the danger is gone. And then the poster has a weird robot on it. And the episode is apparently scary and unusual. And that's all we know. So I'm saying, I'm saying that the reason they, they're, they're being secretive about Shooty is that he's going to appear in some weird shenanigans in this episode. Maybe like a Guardians of the Edge thing. Like maybe the Doctor has a little bit of a mental breakdown. Well, I don't know. You did just say that it's unlike anything they've done before. And they've done the Guardians of the Edge thing. And we've had the Doctor working alongside other incarnations of the Doctor before. But has, has the current Doctor specifically worked alongside a future one? Usually you have the current one working alongside past ones. With the exception, I guess, of that tiny moment where 12 briefly appears in Day of the Doctor, but I don't count that because they don't share this. They don't share the screen. Yeah. You just get eyebrows. I think, I think Shooty and David Tennant might, sh I mean, this is baseless speculation here. There's no reason to believe I am correct. I mean, I, I gave you some baseless speculation with the Rose yeah. is the toy maker situation. So, but I am saying, and we'll find out next week if I'm right. I'm saying Shooty's in episode two. And then, and then of course, in episode three when David Tennant regenerates. But that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm sticking with that. Well, I guess we will find out and we'll come back next week to unpack that for you guys. Have I said unpack too much in this episode? Eh, only like four times. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a reasonable amount of unpacking, I think. We might unpack the unpacking more next week, too. Who knows? So that, that about does it for this week's episode of Who's Talking. Join us next week to see if we unpack more. And then join us as we talk about the next uh, anniversary special, Wild Blue Yonder. Bye, y'all. Bye.